Welcome back, and welcome to our storytelling interview. My name is David Frainer, and I'm here with Nancy Brown. And I think of this segment as the storyboard. In animated films, as you may know, the storyboard is that set of images that kind of performs, provides a structure and backbone, backbone of an animated film. The storyboard is what holds the film together, and so this is our chance to look at what holds storytelling together with one particular storyteller. So Nancy, thank you for agreeing to be part of our storyboard, and thank you for sharing your story. And I can tell, and <clears throat> I know from deep research from a friend of mine that you have more stories to tell, and I don't want us to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I do want us to dive in. So you're a long-time resident of Portsmouth, and you worked as a high school wellness counselor and educator. And I'm wondering, um, that seems like a particular kind of niche. How did you get involved and in, wanted to get involved in that as a career? Um, I went back to school and got a master's like in health and nutrition. But I mean, that, did you, is that something it, you always wanted to do? Or is it um, something it you It sort of came, came about as I got a little bit older. No, actually, what I started out was what was referred to as, um, I forgot even the title, um, Home Economics. That's what I started out teaching as Home Economics. And then I taught that for a while, and I um, found it was pretty frustrating. Like Peter and I, my friend who is here, um, we worked at uh, Farmington High School. And that's the subject that I taught. And I insisted that um, boys take the class as well. And I mostly wanted to focus on nutrition and food preparation and things like that. I was um, never very good at sewing. I was supposed to teach a sewing class. And I remember a student saying, my mother can sew better than you. And I said, I know she can. You should invite her to come. <laughs> you should invite her to come to, to class. No. And um, eventually, we, it was OK that boys participated. And it turned out to be. Um, my going in a new direction in terms of not just learning how to cook, but what in terms of what's healthy to eat. And, um, and then I got very interested in nutrition and then went uh, in another direction in terms of getting a master's <clears throat> in that. I'm somewhat older than you, and uh, when I was in high school, boys were not allowed to take home ec. And I remember Donald Brown wanted to take home ec classes in. He was absolutely forbidden. He had to take shop. I took shop class, and I thought if I could take shop class, then um, the boys could go. take um, some of the home ec classes, especially the, the food preparation and nutrition aspect of it. And Peter was very supportive of me, but the principal was not. The principal would come into the room and check in on us once in a while because um, he's passed away, so I, I can say that. Um, um, he um, would be frustrated that I um, kind of would rearrange the classroom. And I didn't realize how important that was um, in terms of having students work in groups as opposed to sitting in rows, which is kind of how I was raised. Um, and that became a whole new direction for me. And I, then I. I don't know where I'm going, but um, <laughs> from okay. teaching in public high schools to an inner city Boston, and then I went into the Peace Corps, and then when I got back, um, I was working as a public health educator out of the 
um, uh, um, family planning, um, you know, council right, right, yeah. and community center. And then from there, um, by chance, someone calls me and said, Nancy, do you know there's a job available in health and wellness at Exeter Academy? And I said, okay. Well, aren't you interested? And I never actually ever thought that that would be a direction I would take. And I oh, applied, really? yeah, and I applied and I, um, I felt like, what's the term you say, an elephant in a... Uh, Living room? In a, in a china shop or something like that, going into, <clears throat> at the school for an interview in um, like the dean of faculty's room, that his room was as big as my entire downstairs. And I remember <laughs> sitting way across from the room and he said, come over here and, and sit with me. And then we talked a little bit and um, um, uh, asking just basic questions. Um, sort of similar to what you're saying, why did you go in this direction? Right. What, why are you interested in that? And I just spoke from my mind and heart and said, because that's very important for people to be healthy. And the world we live in, and that was then, um, 1990, and um, and I think now even more so. Absolutely. You think of right. um, what's happening, not just here but in our world. I mean, I just read about all these different illnesses, and if I were younger, I would go to work in another country and, you know, work with people who have Ebola or you know some of them, you know, malaria, all the different things that still exist. But talk about your motivation and your willingness to do that sort of thing. Because it strikes me, perhaps some of you, that not everybody is going to plunge into Central America or work in, on Ebola or work in rural Appalachia. So there's something inside of you that moves you in that direction. Tell us a little bit about that, um, if you can. I'm just interested. You know, I. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know how to answer that. That's I mean, <clears throat> um, working in Appalachia. Um, yeah, talk a little bit about that. How, now, that was with Vista. That was with Vista, and that was mm -hmm. in the late '60s, and that was um, the um, war on poverty, and um, many of us in the country were exposed to, um, like the uh, income. Um, you know, injustices and um, how people had to live and there's so many pockets of poverty, which there still is today. And um, I thought it would be interesting, instead of starting off teaching, when I graduated from college, to um, join VISTA program. And that was a two-year program. And um, I worked in West Virginia and Kentucky and um, interesting, I thought one day I would do a, a True Tales talk and then I was trained by the Black Panthers. And we were sent to, really? as young people, they're all like people who had just graduated from college pretty much, a small group of us. We were sent to Baltimore, Maryland. I remember my family um, just like, what's wrong with you, you know? <laughs> no. And one of the only people that actually responded not only one, both of my grandmothers responded, saying, my, my grandmother Annie said, I don't know why you're doing this, but I think you know why you're doing this. And 
I believe you know why you're doing this, you know? And I just remember that, because I needed that kind of support. And my father also was, was, was pretty supportive, not understanding, but why would I go off? Because um, I came from very blue-collar background. And um, for me to have made it through college, and then instead of taking a teaching job, which I was offered um, pretty quickly uh, after student teaching, I said, no, I'm going to wait a while. And I uh, chose to um, you know, join VISTA. And then to be, it was just exciting to learn all these things, to go and be in a different place and be with other people. And here we were in this old um, building that was a convent, which is interesting, um, that was used for the training for the VISTA volunteers. And we sat in a room like this, and there were these um, like two or three Black Panthers that came in, and they were teaching us to be organizers. And you know what that meant? Talking with people. It wasn't much different than if you were a teacher. If you were an organizer and you were trying to help somebody do something, you talked with them, you had them tell you what was going on, you encouraged them to speak to you, and then you encouraged them to speak up, to speak up. So from that training, uh, the, the West Virginia is a story in itself, I but bet. then I got sent to um, um, Eastern Kentucky and worked in two coal mining camps, um, uh, Blackie, Kentucky, and Carcassonne. And when I say coal mining, that meant there were maybe 50, 45, 50, 60 families, and the majority of those families, the father was a coal miner. And the majority of them at that time were sick. There were no health benefits. The men had black lung disease. And they lived in poverty. And the roads were dirt roads. And when I think of how similar it was then to be in Belize, working with the Mayan people, thinking, wait a second, you know? Um, and um, so you'd go from house to house and introduce yourself and talk with someone and say, Pat, I, this is why I'm here. And I understand that um, your husband has black lung disease and he, you know, he can't work and you don't have any health insurance. So how do you, how do you take care of yourself? You know, and guess what? They couldn't. They had a hard time. I mean, if a couple of my friends, like Alice, who you said we were right. friends with yeah, Alice, yeah. that's where I met Alice. You know, I was one of the first people in that area in Kentucky and then Alice and um, a couple of other people came to work there and we, we totally bonded because of we were doing this work with these incredible families and well, you know, conditions that they lived in. Um, and you, if you went to visit a family and the father no longer was working or didn't have any health benefits and had you know, black lung disease from being in the mines, um, he opened up the cupboards and there'd be nothing in the cupboards except a couple of cans of beans and stuff and they would make, you know, like cornbread and biscuits and, you know, beans and that's what they'd feed you, you know, and it was shocking. How could I not respond to that? How could I not say, this? people have to know about this. They have to speak up. And what we would do is get them to, we'd hire a bus after a while and we'd get them to go to the governor's office, you know, really? in Kentucky, at the governor who would not have time to speak with them because he'd be busy. And I remember, we'd, then he'd have some other people talk, you know, to them stuff, and they would then say, look, we don't have any health benefits. 
We, we are living in poverty. That was, that was our job. That's what it was to be an organizer. You know? And sometimes it was <clears throat> unbelievably depressing because so. nobody would listen to them. You know? and, um, they were voiceless. Yeah. And we also started like a Head Start program. Really? You know what Head Start, yeah. right? That was uh, working with children who came from families, um, you know, poverty and or uneducated parents that um, they were good human beings, but they didn't know how important it was to start encouraging your child at a very young age to learn, to be interested in learning and reading and doing all these things. So in one of the communities, like in Carcassonne, um, in the one-room schoolhouse that they had, we started a Head Start program and got some of the women in that community to start doing that, reading to the children um, and preparing them. And Head Start still exists today. Every Thursday, I work at a Head Start program right? at community campus. It still needs to be done. Absolutely. You know? Um, and um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I could talk forever. Um, when, when you were uh, joining VISTA and you eventually were assigned to these rural Appalachian communities, did you have choices about where to go? Well. And how did um, you choose? I have a, just a bit of a story. I guess they're stories I really haven't told. but, um, but um, We like stories. I know you do. <laughs> I... Along, remember the group I said in Baltimore, Maryland, that were trained to, to be organizers? Five or six of us were chosen as from, for an experiment. And I was one of those. I would like to find those people today. We were sent to West Virginia to one of the biggest mental health um, buildings, places in the whole country. Um, and it was um, horrific. They didn't have people to work. It was a humongous building filled with people, including little children, and in a one section. And there were children who couldn't speak, and they were identified as being mentally ill and stuff, and they were put in these um, rooms that were padded. I'll never forget it, because it was so terribly painful to see. What, I, who would ever have known that you know, those places existed? And. Um, so we, I worked with the children. I could tell you stories with I worked with the children. And then they'd let us in some of the units. And in some of the units, there were people who, and they used this as an experiment because they needed help so badly. Nobody wanted to do that work. So I remember, um, I remember being with this man. He was working with me. And we were in this one aspect of this mental hospital. And they took us up to the third floor. And then they opened the door. And when we opened the door, it was bedlam. There were people tied to chairs. There were people on the floor who were walking like this. You know, they could speak to you, but they were so, I don't even know what words to use. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. You know, and we, they wanted to see if we could work with these people. So for example, there was one man who was sitting in a chair, like you are sitting, and his toenails hadn't been cut, who knows? They were, they were around his feet. They had grown like they were, I don't even know what word you'd use, fangs or something, you know, hooks or something. So they gave me some equipment and for me to cut his, his toenails, see if I could do that. 
I mean, I could tell you all these stories, and the man started crying. And he said no one had ever done that for him. You know, and of course, all of those things just filled my heart and soul with, right. you know, like, how can we do this? And this is the United States. I mean, what are we doing? And then um, the small group of five, six of us, Sherry was the woman I had worked with. I, and I still have their names. I'd like to find them. I wonder what they ended up doing with their lives. When we started complaining or raising questions, somebody reported us, and we got sent back to um, um, Washington, D.C., to a program, and we were all separated. And that's how I got to Kentucky. <laughs> they sent me then to Kentucky, and it didn't occur to me then. Uh, when they told me what kind of work I would be doing, I was exciting. I was excited. Um, and I said, well, what's going to happen with that hospital? Oh, we'll send other people there to work and stuff. We'll take care of everything. They didn't want us to talk about it because it was bedlam, and people were so mistreated, in particular children that, you know, I have pictures somewhere of the children. I took um, some pictures of children that I would... Um, take them out into the field and play with them and stuff. But um, I for, sort of forgot about all that because then I started working in Kentucky. And I know that's why they separated all of us, that we wouldn't do anything with that. We would never speak up about it. There should have been a documentary done. That it should have been made national news. And eventually mm -hmm. the place closed down. And someday I've said to my family, two of my family members are here, um, I would like to go back to that place in West Virginia and find it, because it's, it's now some kind of a museum. And, um, you know, I How wonder if there are any records. How did you do that work? It was painful. Well, yeah. I remember getting in the elevator after I was with this man, and we were being used as, you know, experiments to see if people like us, young people, could come and volunteer and do the work, because they couldn't hire people to come in and do it. And um, I remember getting in the elevator um, because I also worked with a couple of other people. Some woman that had um, um, lobotomy. Um, and you know, we'd see the women, what they did to these different people and the different section of this hospital. And then we got, I remember getting back in the elevator and falling down in the elevator, just collapsing, like down the back of the, the the wall and say, what do we do about what we have just seen and learned? You know, you know, I just, it took me a long time to, you know, get over, um, I don't know what word, the insanity of it, <laughs> of what they were doing. And I know to this day, that's why they separated all of us and never, we never had contact with where anyone else was being sent of those people. And we all got, and they offered me these are the places you could go, Nancy. We know what you can do. We know what your background is. You choose, and we'll let you go wherever you go. And that's how I got to Appalachia. And that was incredible. I loved it. I, it that was amazing. I could speak forever about that. And over the years, I felt very honored that a number of families stayed in touch with me. The men had passed away. Um, the women stayed in touch with me. And uh, a couple years ago, I went back with my youngest granddaughter and I took her with me. And um, she was very moved by, you know, but, you know, the few things that we got to see. We actually went into a coal mine that had been shut down, but now you could um, go into it. And also, I know that many of the people there, especially the young people, voted for Mr. Trump 
um, because they thought he was going to open the coal mines in that area, but he's not going to do that. What they're well, doing now is strip mining. <laughs> you know, strip mining this, is cutting off the top of the mountain. And yeah. I mean, this brings us to the end of our conversation. Oh, okay. See, <laughs> and I wasn't going to say anything. I was thinking five minutes. <laughs> Remember, she was petrified I about having talk. only right. four minutes to talk. Yeah. But thank you. I got it out of my no. system. <laughs> Clearly, you have more stories to tell. Yes, I do. And, and we certainly appreciate the strength of character that it takes to have lived the experiences that lead to the stories that you do have to tell. Well, thank you. We hope you'll come back and tell us some more of your stories. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And, and thank this, you for listening. This folks. brings us to the end of our thank conversation you. with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and joining in this conversation. And it brings us to the end of our program. Our thanks to the True Tales Live team, Amy Antonucci, Steve Koval, John Lovering, and Pat Spaulding. Thanks. And I want to particularly acknowledge two of PPMTV's leaders, the founding executive director of PPMTV, Bill Humphreys, has recently announced his retirement. And the wow. operations manager, Chad Cordner, has recently been selected and begun to work as the new PPMTV executive director. And uh, so congratulations to you both. And as we say in my family, you done good. <laughs> oh. I also want to let you know that we've just launched our new True Tales Live e-newsletter. We call it True Tales Times. I'll be editing it. It'll be published two or three times a year. And you can sign up for more information about upcoming shows and workshops and sometimes area storytelling events on our website. TrueTalesLiveNH.org. Our next show, as Amy mentioned, is May 28th, the theme of affecting change slash standing up. Our next free workshop, 7.30 to 9 p.m. on May the 7th, right here downstairs. And if you're considering telling a story, please do sign up at TrueTalesLiveNH, the number one, at gmail.com. My name is David Frainer. Thank you all, and good night. <laughs>